morning. If you're just joining us, my name is Andrew. I'm glad that you're here today. And I have a question for you. It's this. What would you give anything you have to buy? What would you value so much that you take everything you have, all the money in your bank, all your assets, and you'd want to put it all in the pot to buy it? Or to put it another way, what are you so desperate for that you would do anything to have? I'd suggest that the answer to that question is different for different people. But I want to talk about that today. We're going to look at a parable that Jesus tells, a series of parables, about the desperation that somebody feels and they will do anything to have this one thing. And I just wonder what that thing is for you. What is it that you're just, that you desire above everything that you're so passionate about that regardless of the cost, you'd pay it to receive it? This little girl that we just baptized, uh, Jennifer and Scott, her parents, were telling me when she was a little girl, they were in a bad car accident and she was in the car seat in the back and miraculously she was okay. But what all parents would say that they would do anything to ensure and to keep the livelihood and the welfare of uh, one of their kids safe. It was a miracle and we're grateful that the, they were unharmed in the terrible car accident. But if you've ever had someone in the hospital, somebody sick, you've ever lost a loved one, you'd say, I would do anything pay any price to make that situation get okay. I'm just wondering what that is for you. See, we're in the midst of a sermon series we're calling Revealed. Here's why. I believe Jesus had certain information that is valuable for us to know. You might even call it insider information. Facebook has been all on the news this week. Why? Well, a few weeks ago, it's because of their IPO, and it was about the, the, all the hype surrounding the company going public. But then, of course, since they went public, it's been bad news after bad news after bad news for Facebook. And one of the problems, of course, is that, that I read is that some people are saying that some of the investors had insider information. And they knew things that others didn't know. And that obviously creates an unfair environment when it comes to the uh, offering of the stock. And so some people are even suing. You will remember a few years ago, Martha Stewart, in fact, was initially accused of insider information or insider trading with regard to some things that she was in trouble for. And she ended up going to jail for perjury. And the reason that we think insider information is such a big deal is because when you have information from a good source on the inside, it's going to change how you live and how, what decisions you make. If I'm selling you a car, and I know that it's a car that was uh, one of these waterlogged cars during Hurricane Katrina, and I don't tell you that, and you buy the car, and you find out later, you'll be pretty ticked at me, right? Because that was information that you thought that you should have known. And if I tell my friend, hey, I'm selling a car, and it was really flooded, it's a lemon, but I don't tell you, you'll be upset with my friend for not giving you that insider information. So there's this great passage in Matthew chapter 13 where Jesus offers parable after parable with what I would call insider information. Information about what the kingdom of God is really like. Now if you're here today and you're a, a believing Christian, you'll think that it's valuable to listen to the information that Jesus has to offer us. If the very mind behind the universe that became incarnate in Jesus Christ has something to say, it, I would think it has something for us to listen to. But perhaps you're here today and you don't believe that about Jesus. You, you're not really sure what you believe, but you wouldn't give him that kind of uh, credibility. I'd still encourage you to listen to what we're going to talk about today because I believe there's still wisdom that Jesus offers here, even if you, before you walked in the door, weren't really a believer. And going back to the Facebook example, if five years ago I came to you and said, hey, do you want to invest in Facebook? And you knew then what we all know now about the size of the company. I suspect you would say, heck yeah, I want to invest. Here, let me put it into the pot. 
Again, what is it that you're so desperate for or that you want so much that you would pay any price to receive it, to achieve it? Here we are in Matthew chapter 13. This is uh, Matthew 13, 44 through 46. Two very simple parables. Now, parables are little, almost like word pictures, and Jesus uses them a lot. I'd say it's interesting, by the way, that Jesus chose, chooses to teach a lot in parables. What that says to me is that there's certain truths about the universe that can't be um, communicated in a simple kind of like proposition. It's not math, A plus B equals C. There's something about a parable that Jesus prefers to encapsulate the whole truth of the gospel. And there's also always something about a parable that's a little bit weird, a little bit off-putting. And I want you to listen to these two simple ones and see if you can see what it is. Here we are, Matthew 13, verse 44 to 46. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. May God add his richest blessings on the hearing and reading of this word. Let's pray. Lord, I desire today that you would make this little sermon something worth hearing. That you would show up and take my words and my preparation and make them into something that our hearts need to hear. Lord, and I pray that you take my words and speak through them. And take our thoughts this morning and think through them, Lord. And then take our hearts and light them up for you. We ask this in your name. Amen. So the kingdom of heaven is like, it's an analogy Jesus is going to give us, information I think that we need to hear. Now the kingdom of heaven is just that place, in other gospels it's called the kingdom of God, it's that place where God is acknowledged as rightful king and ruler, and where everything that God wants is what happens. So one of the things that we believe as Christians is that one day the whole world will be swallowed up in the kingdom of God, it says in Philippians, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But right now we're living kind of before that's going to happen. That's why the world is the way it is. That's why we see some things, pockets of peace and harmony and wholeness and redemption and forgiveness, and other places of war and brokenness and poverty, because the kingdom hasn't been fully realized. But wherever it is that somebody confesses that Christ is Lord in a human heart, in a family, around a kitchen table, in a church, in a community, in a nation, wherever that is, that's where the kingdom is already present. So Jesus is giving us information about what the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is like. It's not a perfect analogy, which is why I think he offers us two examples here of something about the kingdom of heaven. The first is that the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, and a man came along, stumbled over it, then realizing it was treasure, took everything he had, sold it so he could buy the money, have the money to buy the field, and then he rejoiced. And then Jesus says, but the kingdom of heaven is also like a merchant of fine pearls. And in the ancient world, uh, before there were synthetic pearls, pearls were like diamonds are today. It's kind of like the, the uh, supreme jewel. A merchant of fine p- pearls who was looking for pearls found one of great value that he sold everything he had and went and bought it. That's what the kingdom of heaven is like, Jesus says. And what I want to do today is just kind of work through some of the simple aspects of the story that if we look too quickly, we're likely to, we're likely to miss. Because I think that there's something in here that Jesus has to say to you and me that will radically change what we do tomorrow morning when we wake up. Okay, just off the top, this is really obvious. There's something about the kingdom that's hidden. And both of the examples that Jesus gives, 
it's not obvious or, or um, it's not a, it's maybe not, maybe to put it in another way, the kingdom is not made aware to everyone. In the first example, a guy who's just minding his own business, walking along the field, stumbles across some treasure. Jesus says that's what the kingdom is like. I wonder this morning if you're someone who has just stumbled across the kingdom. Here's one way. I, I hear from a lot of people, they were minding their own business, had nothing to do with the kingdom of God, and something happened. Uh, a baby was born, somebody was sick, there was a tragedy. Something happened that sort of put your universe off kilter. And you sort of stumbled into church, or maybe you stumbled in this morning, maybe it was someplace else. I wonder if you're someone who's just stumbled into the kingdom. You weren't looking for it. You weren't trying to be a religious person. You weren't interested in those sorts of questions. You were minding your own business, and one day, things changed for you. I find that to be very good news. Because that means to me, when I see people out in the world, I have no idea who it is or how it's going to be that someone is going to stumble into the kingdom. That means you may have, let's say you have some relatives, and you think, those people are so far from God. God can't do anything with a life that committed to bitterness and sin. The good news is, is that it's not about that person or about you and I. We have no idea how someone might just stumble across the kingdom, and there it will be. I have some great stories that I've heard in this church and in other places about people. Right when they weren't looking for it is exactly when the kingdom showed up in a miraculous and startling way. And if you're here today and, and you feel like you've never had that sort of experience, can I just tell you to just to be patient? You never know. You never know how or where it is that God will show up. So the kingdom is hidden, and some people stumble across it. But then Jesus, and I love the way he pairs these two parables. In the second example, he says, there are some people who are actually looking for the kingdom. For example, like this merchant of fine pearls. The merchant is someone who is looking for pearls. He's not, just, he's not just somebody who's out swimming one day in the coast and he dives down and finds an oyster with a beautiful pearl in it. He's someone who makes his living, who knows the inside of the trade of the pearl business inside and out. But you notice what happens with this guy. Once he sees what he's looking for, it's even better than he thought because he sells everything he has just so he can buy and possess this one pearl. And maybe you're here today and you're what I would maybe call a seeker. You're someone who's interested in these big questions. Maybe you've, you know, you went to college and you heard different stories about truth and the nature of the universe. And so you really study that. Maybe you took a long time and, and you've been looking at this religion or that religion or this truth claim or that truth claim. Maybe you're a seeker. But the people that I know that are true seekers, truly open-hearted, truly open-minded when they really examine it, there's something about the pull of the gospel, something about the kingdom that captures who they are. One of the famous converts of the 20th century was a man named C.S. Lewis. He's written a lot of books, not just for kids, but he was also a very accomplished academic and popular writer in England. He was originally an atheist, but he just started exploring and working through some things. And he says in this great passage in his autobiography, he was riding in his brother's motorcycle sidecar, and they were heading to the zoo. And before they left home, he didn't believe in God, and when he got to the zoo, he did. I love that. Just, it just happens like that. He was seeking. And then once he realized what it was that he had found, what the nature of the kingdom was really like, he said, you know, it's worth everything. Or to use in Jesus' terms, it's worth selling everything you have just so you can buy it. The kingdom is hidden. We don't see it everywhere. And one of the questions that I always want to know, and perhaps you're the same way, is why does God hide it? Why doesn't God make his work in the world or the truth about Jesus more clear? 
And the truth is, I don't know any more than you don't know. But I, but I wonder if it's something about the way it needs to work is that it needs to be hidden. If God were to truly reveal what the kingdom is like baldly to us, it might overwhelm us. And I think God is committed to our free will and our, our own response to the goodness of his grace. Just an aside, just a thought. But the kingdom is hidden. And if you're here today and you've never stumbled across it, you've never seen it, can I just encourage you to just be patient? Jesus says in another place, seek and you're going to find. Maybe today you just need to hear the word just to keep seeking. Don't give up. So the kingdom is hidden, but then there's something else about this kingdom that Jesus tells us, and I don't want us to miss it. It's that it demands a decision. See, this guy, he's, he's walking along, he stumbles over the treasure, and he has to make the decision, am I going to pursue the treasure or not? And, of course, in the parable he does, he, he's probably a poor man, according to the story, because it takes everything he has just to buy the one field so he can have the treasure in it. I should also say that a lot of the commentators say, don't worry too much about all the details of the legality of buying a field that somebody else owns that already has treasure in it. That's not the point. You'll get, that's a rabbit show you might want to not go down. The point is that this guy comes across treasure, makes a decision for it, and does everything he can to possess it. Or in the case of this merchant, you know, he finds this little pearl. He says, it's important. I'm, I'm going after it. The kingdom demands a decision. I wonder today if you're someone who's ever made a decision for or against the kingdom. Or are you just sort of keeping your options open? See, one of the, one of the cultural values that we like is the idea of kind of openness, open-mindedness, which is an important value. I'm not knocking it. But we like to say things like... Uh, you know, I'm not going to make a decision ultimately about that truth claim or that truth claim. I'm just going to sort of sit back and evaluate all of them, keep my options open. And that sounds very high-minded and enlightened. But I think it's actually false. I think back to my wedding day. And I remember standing there with my wife, Elaine, and the minister says, Will you take Elaine to be your wife, to have and to hold from this day forward for better or for worse as long as you both shall live? And I remember I didn't say, I like the sound of that, I'm not opposed to that, but I'm actually going to keep my options open if that's okay. If I had, you would have kicked me and kicked me off the stage. You can't do that. Either you're committed to your wife or you're not. And in fact, any kind of equivocation, this wishy-washiness, well, I'm not opposed to commitment to her, but I'm just not sure I'm going to do that. That in itself, you see, is a decision. You see how that works? It demands a decision, either for or against it. You can't always sit on the fence, or a, a cliche I like, either got to fish or cut bait. So can I just push you a little bit and evaluate your decisions? Are, are you somebody who is really trying to buy into the idea that you can keep all your options open? Or are you making a decision or not? Can I step on some toes a little bit with love? I think this is one of the problems in our culture with sex outside of marriage. See, in our culture, we want to believe that sex has nothing to do with commitment. And I'd suggest to you, in a non-judgmental way, just uh, keeping my eyes open, seeing what I see and hearing your stories and just knowing how the human life works, is that sex without commitment often causes us problems because there's something about sex that demands or requires commitment. And that's why sex outside of the commitment of marriage doesn't really work. You can't... You can't kind of keep your options open. Either you're going to have to commit or not. And I don't say that in any way. I'm not trying to condemn you or who, who are here. I'm just asking you to start thinking about maybe the decisions you've made in your life. Are those decisions decisions that are leading to wholeness and happiness and peace? Are the decisions of commitment? Are you sort of trying to do this thing or are you keeping a foot on both sides? 
Donald Miller, he's a writer. Some of you have read his book. He has a great book called Blue Like Jazz. He puts it like this. There is a time when every person who encounters Jesus, who believes Jesus is the Son of God, decides that they will spend their life following him. And then I like this part. Some people, like the Apostle Paul, make this decision the minute they meet him, the minute they become a Christian. Others, like the Apostle Peter, endure years of half-hearted commitment and spiritual confusion before leaping in with all their passion. And still others may enjoy some benefits of God's love and grace without entering into the true joy of a marriage with their maker. I like that. I, I, I feel like that's true. People make the decision in different ways. Some people, it's a split-second thing. They're going one direction, God hit them upside the head, and they went the other direction. For others of us, it's a long process. But at some point, you have to make a decision for or against the gospel. In Jesus' parable, these guys, they say, okay, I'm going to go for it. I'm going for it with everything I have. I'm selling everything I have to buy that field or to buy that one pearl. Can I ask you again the question I started with? What is it that you desire so desperately that you would do whatever you had to attain it? What do you want above all else that whatever it took, whatever price you had to pay, you would do it? According to Jesus, the nature of the kingdom demands that sort of response from you and me. Have you ever met anybody like that? Not just with regard to the kingdom, but about something that they were single-mindedly pursuing. I think about these uh, athletes that are preparing for the Olympics in a couple of weeks. To be an Olympic-level athlete, it seems to me you have to be single-mindedly focused. You practice all the time. You eat right. You've been working on this for years and years. Jesus is saying that's what... That's what it looks like to live the Christian life, to have that kind of passion. What would it look like, can I just ask you, if, if our church in this community had that kind of passion for the kingdom? If we were so passionately committed to our own growth and grace, if we were saying, God, find any falseness in me, any hypocrisy, any envy, any jealousy, Lord, don't let me, don't let me judge other people by their actions and myself and my intentions. Find it in me, Lord. And create in me a clean heart, as it says in Psalm 51. What if we said, Lord, if there's any places of injustice in our community, regardless of the cost, we're going to pursue it. And we're going to, in your name, right the wrongs. Lord, if there are any children in this community who don't have safe places to sleep at night, we're going to do whatever it takes to, to meet that need. You can imagine, obviously, if we were that committed to the, to the kingdom of heaven, to the kingdom of God in our midst, it would light up this city. Jesus is saying the kingdom demands a decision. It's hidden. It's not obvious to everybody, but to those who find it, it demands a decision, either completely for or against. There's no halfway. But then there's one last part about this that I find most intriguing, and I think it's probably the best news I have to share with you all day today. See, you maybe grew up in a church environment, or maybe you didn't and you thought church environments were like this. Maybe you grew up in an environment where the faith was all about do's and don'ts. You had this image in your mind of God as sort of somebody who just is always shaking his finger. Saying, don't do that. You're a terrible sinner and I hate you. And that's a powerful narrative once you get it in your mind and you think that that's what God is like. And over time, either you're going to turn away from the faith and say, I don't want to have anything to do with a God like that. Or you're going to become someone who's very self-righteous and hypocritical yourself. We become often like the gods that we follow. The good news I have to tell you is I don't think that's what the kingdom of God is like. And according to Jesus, in fact, it's the opposite. Look back here to Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. This is the guy who comes across the field. 
He says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, went and sold all he had and bought that field. In his joy, he sold all that he had and bought the field. See, if we believe that somehow this thing about following Christ is about do's and don'ts and just buckling down and it's a burden, we're missing the point. Joy is one of the central characteristics of what it means to, to be in the kingdom. This guy comes across this treasure. He is so excited. It seems like a small thing for him to go ahead and sell, sell all that he has and buy the field. What is it that you desire above all things? What is it that you would pay any price to achieve? I would suspect that whatever that thing is, you would do it out of joy. Whatever the price was, you'd want to pay it. Again, I think about people who are in the hospital. I spent a lot of time in the hospital this week. People who have been there, victims of violence, people who are on their deathbeds, people who are suffering. And if you walk around a hospital, you see just grief on a lot of people's faces. And if you've ever had a loved one who's sick, you'd say, listen, I, I would pay any price. There is no price I wouldn't pray, pay to make this right. Maybe you're here today and you're carrying a serious, heavy grief. There's no price you wouldn't pay for God to, to make right the bad thing in your life. The kingdom of God is something that when we see it and encounter it, it produces joy in us. So regardless of the consequences or the price, they don't even seem to count. Because of the overwhelming and surpassing value of the thing we're going towards. The kingdom is joy. So I was thinking about this. How does it offer joy? We live in a world that is just ripped apart by racism and, and hatred between different sorts of people, different language groups. You know that as well as I know that. In the gospel, Paul says there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male and female, but all are one in Christ Jesus. Today, there are people who are worshiping Christ in all languages with all sorts of dress and skin color and all different cultures. The church is not about America or about the Western values. The church is its own thing. And there are Asian Christians and African Christians and South American Christians and so on. It's in the gospel and the power of the gospel that old lines of division are broke down between black and white, between Jew and Gentile, between the South and the North, whatever it is. Those lines are broken down. That's something to be joyful about. If I knew that I could take what I own and, and, and spend it in such a way that all hatred of race and class would go away, I would do it in a second, wouldn't you? It'd be worth it. See, the gospel produces joy. The lonely, the lonely. Yesterday we had a party at somebody's house in the church for no other reason just to have a party and get together. One of the things that church is supposed to be about is a new sort of family. That's why people say brothers and sisters in Christ, we use that language, because in Christ there's a new family. So for the lonely, it's in the church where a new family is formed. If I knew that we could take what we have here and end all loneliness in our city, of course we'd spend it. What a great thing. The gospel doesn't just bring healing from racism, it brings healing from loneliness. What about war? I saw the picture this week, maybe you saw it. It's a famous photograph of a little girl in Vietnam. It's the 40th anniversary of this photograph. A little girl running naked down the side center of the street covered in napalm, screaming and crying. I almost wanted to show it in church, but I figured it was too graphic for us to even look at. If you could take what you have and stop war and the need for war, wouldn't you spend it? You'd do it with joy. And of course, finally, and most importantly, with death. 
When I think about the people in my life that I've lost or the people in our congregation who've lost loved ones, I would spend any price to somehow reverse the power of death. And of course, that is exactly what the gospel is about. Jesus says, listen, come to me and be not afraid, for I have overcome the world, even death, he says. If you could overcome the power of death so that death itself ultimately has no more power over you, you'd spend anything you could to do it. So here's what I'd like us to do. I'd like us to commit from here for however long it takes, and it's going to be different for different people, to be praying for God to give us a taste of the joy that comes from the kingdom until we have it. If you're here today and you're just exploring your options spiritually and you're not sure what you believe, can I just encourage you, and it won't cost you anything, to start praying now as long as it takes, maybe a year, mark a year in your calendar, June 3rd next year. God, give me a glimpse of your joy. Give me a glimpse of what it means to be a part of the kingdom. And just keep praying it. And if you're here today and you, you're a Christian but you haven't had joy in your life for a long time, maybe it's time to start reevaluating what you believe about God. Is God someone who's just shaking his finger at you? Or is God someone who has something so great for you, so full of wholeness and happiness and peace that regardless of the price you'd pay it? If you're a Christian and you're not living with that sort of joy, regardless of your circumstances, I'm not saying everything works out, but if you're a Christian and you're not living with that kind of joy, maybe it's time for you and I to evaluate who we are and to start praying, God, give me a glimpse of your joy. Help me. Help me to make your joy evident out in the world. See, the kingdom demands a decision, either for or against it. And according to Jesus, what he has prepared for us is so good that regardless of the price, we'd pay it. And I got to tell you, I, I am like two steps into the kingdom. I, am so, I have so far to go. But I can honestly tell you, and I don't know any Christian who wouldn't say the same thing. Regardless of the sacrifices that come with following Christ, regardless of the decisions I have to make about my money, my job prospects, but my family, regardless of those things, I would gladly pay it over and over again for the joy of being a part of the kingdom. And I want that joy for you and for me. May God give us the grace to wait and the eyes to see it when it arrives. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.